So I'm going to age myself real quick. Um, I was born in a decade that starts with an eight, and the year ended with a zero. Um, so, but my parents loved music. And so as a, as a kid, my dad loved 70s rock. So I'm talking like Boston, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith. It was, it was always, it was like the anthem of my house. My mom, she loved Fleetwood Mac. Um, she loved anything like funk and disco. So we heard like old Michael Jackson, like all of this. My house was always full of music. You mix in some like Conway Twitty and some Randy Travis and... <laughs> and a little bit like Phil Collins, and I mean, you ha it was just an eclectic mix, and then it just continued to evolve as the decades went on. So as you might imagine, my family, we loved going to concerts. And I was talking to my mom, and I asked her, you know, if you could, what's a concert you missed out and you would love to go to and you'd still love to go to? And so she told me my favorite group in the world, I never got to see them in concert, is Earth, Wind, and Fire. So for you guys who have no idea who Earth, Wind, and Fire are, <laughs> see if you can finish this. Do you remember the 21st night of? Ooh, you guys get way better than first service. <laughs> I heard lots of Decembers and Novembers and like it's September. Okay, and even better, I found a picture. Hopefully they've got it. Let's see if they've got it. Um, yeah, look at these guys. Who could pass up a band looking like this telling me I'm a shining star? They look like they just came back from Planet Funk. I don't know where they're from. But I'm always surprised. She, she, she loves this band. Even last night, I was telling her, hey, I'm going to go preach on Paducah. And, and she goes, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire is playing in Vegas next week. You want to go? I'm like, no, I'm not going to Vegas to watch. I'm not going to go watch a band that's 40 years past their prime. I think one of the guys has passed, literally passed on. But she would drop it to go see them because it brings her back just to a time that she sang those songs. And they have a catalog full of hits that she remembers. And even to this day, if you were to play Boogie Wonderland, I mean, the disco is going to start and my mom's getting up. In fact, my kids, they call her Boogie. That is her name. But there's something comforting and grounding about going back to the greatest hits, to listening to a song on replay that you may have heard dozens of times, but it still holds up. I mentioned a few weeks ago that my dad, he passed away at the beginning of the year. And I remember getting that, that phone call from my mom and the text message, and he died suddenly of a heart attack and just 3 a.m. sitting there on the couch weeping. And I spent time just praying for a minute, and I popped in the earbuds and I played my favorite song. And it wasn't a worship song. It's by the Foo Fighters. My favorite band, Times Like These. And it's just, times like these, I need to learn to live again and give again and love again. And I needed to hear that song just to kind of get me and to ground me because there's something about hearing those things that are familiar to just sometimes center us and get us back. And so today, we're going to be looking at a very, very, very familiar passage to most of us if we've been around church. It's one of Jesus' greatest hits. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard it, taught it, probably preached it. It's, it's something that you are familiar with. But the greatest hits always stand the test of time. And today, I want to take a look at what could be almost the title of the message of Jesus. And the title of my message today is Lost Things Matter. 
So since you have your Bibles, why don't you open to the book of Luke, and we're going to start in verse 25. And I'm going to be reading today from the Passion Translation. Um, So Luke 25, we're going to start here. Luke 15, I'm sorry, Luke 15, verse 25. It says, Now, the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned, and as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. He called over one of the servants and asked, What's going on? The servant replied, It's your younger brother. He's returned home, and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate, so his father came out and pleaded with him, Come and enjoy the feast with us. The son said, Father, listen, how many years have I worked like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son, and I've never once disobeyed you. But you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could at least celebrate with my friends, (coughs) as this son of yours is doing now. Look at him. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living, and here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. I'm going to kind of leave it right there. We'll come back to those other verses. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that, as always, God, your words would speak way louder than mine. God, I pray that you would soften hearts and that your spirit would lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. So for the majority of you, just hearing me read this ending portion of this parable, the rest of the story kind of floods your mind. It's like hearing the lyrics to a favorite song that you only hear a snippet of, but you know what the rest of the song sounds like. For those of you that have no idea where we're going and you're looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, perfect, you're here on the right Sunday. But this is the ending of a familiar story that for centuries the church has called the the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal son. But it's actually the conclusion, it's a concluding riff to a trio of stories told by Jesus. It's a trio of stories with one common chorus running throughout. Lost things matter. Now let me remind you why Jesus told these stories in Luke 15. So Jesus has been doing ministry for a while, and he's been doing amazing things. He's healed the sick, blind can see, deaf ears are suddenly opened, he's fed thousands with just a sack lunch. But even more amazing and definitely more unfamiliar and uncomfortable to a lot of people watching isn't what he did, but who he did it with. Jesus is hanging out with criminals, outcasts, people that religious leaders of the day would call unclean or unworthy, but Jesus kept hanging around them. They were drawn to him. He told them about love and how to live different, and they kept coming. They were drawn towards him, and he kept coming. But the religious people and the religious leaders, it was making them very uncomfortable. And it's actually often how we react when grace and love comes at us for no apparent reason. When it's seemingly, when we get something for free, we live in a society where when people offer us something for free, we immediately think, what's the string that's attached to it? Or how does this not apply to me? Like, you know, when we get those coupons to Kohl's and you want to buy that Nike sweatshirt and they're like, nah, this doesn't work for that. You're like, what is this? Or when somebody gives you a, like a compliment suddenly out of the blue, and you're like, okay, um, what did I do? It's, this happened to me just last week. So I leave here, I drive back down to Clarksville, and I teach at night our leadership development program. And I got done teaching, 
And one of our staff members, she comes with her husband and she gives me a big hug and she's like, I'm so glad you're our pastor. And I immediately, being skeptical me, I'm like, what did I do? And then, this is where my brain then went, what did she do? Like, what, what is going on? But we have a hard time just receiving something freely. And Jesus was out there freely healing and loving and showing grace and compassion. Jesus was offering the same love, the same grace to both the righteous and the rowdy. And it was creating a scandal. But Jesus didn't care about the scandal it was creating. He cared about the scandalous that he was called to. Us. So look at the beginning of Luke 15. And this sets up why he's telling these stories. It says, Many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. This raised concerns among the Jew- Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law. Indignant, they grumbled and complained, saying, Look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and welcomes them all to come to him. In response, Jesus gives them this illustration. Jesus starts telling stories. Jesus tells three distinct but similar stories. Each one is like a verse to a song with a familiar chorus that we're going to see running throughout. And the first stanza to this greatest hit of Jesus is about a lost sheep. Jesus oftentimes relates our relationship with him to that of a shepherd to sheep. Here's some things about sheep. The thing that we're related to. Sheep are fairly helpless. They get lost real easy. Sheep don't have the greatest vision. Um, sheep will eat themselves to death. And if they don't eat themselves to death and they're locked into a confined space and they run out of food, they'll eat each other's poop and eat themselves to death. Sheep will fall, follow each other off the cliff. And this is the way that we're related to. I'm like, come on, what is going on here? But I think what Jesus wants us to understand is that we as humans have the proclivity to be stubborn, to wander, to think that we can take care of ourselves on our own, that we have the tendency to be overconfident in our own abilities and we leave ourselves unprotected and vulnerable, getting lost. But here's honestly the truth. The story is less about the sheep and it's more about this good shepherd. In the story, the shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders lost. There's still 99 found, but one's lost. And this good shepherd says, I'm going after that one. And then he finds what is lost. He finds that lost shepherd. And the story ends with what will become a familiar chorus that echoes out these three parables. Luke 15, 6. Returning home, he called all his friends and neighbors and together and said, let's have a party. Come and celebrate with me. The return of my lost lamb, it wandered away, but I found it and brought home. This will become a familiar chorus. I found what I've lost. Let's party. And this is a good party. This is like, you know, red solo cup, cha-cha slide party. Let's go. I found what is lost. And Jesus continues telling another story. Imagine there's a woman with 10 coins. She loses one, but she still has nine. But she's obsessed with finding the one that's missing. So she she lights a lamp. She starts sweeping the house. She's turning everything, searching for this lost coin. And most of us know what it feels like to lose money. Lose a wallet. Somebody mess with our bank account. Lose a check that somebody handed to us. We know what it feels like to lose something. Guys, if you're like me, I'm constantly, like throughout the day, phone, wallet, keys. Phone, wallet, keys. Okay, do I have phone, wallet, keys? Phone, wallet, keys. Phone, wallet, keys. 
because I am the worst and I set things down everywhere. And even now, now it's jacket time. You know what that means? More pockets to lose my stuff in. That's all that is. So we know what it feels like to lose things. But when we lose money, we search for it. And you know why? Because we all understand that just because the money is lost doesn't mean that it's lost its value. Just because the woman's coin is lost doesn't mean the coin has lost its value. Here's a way to think about it. I do have it, okay. I've also got garbage, that's good. So up here, I've got a $5 bill. If I lose this $5 bill in the couch, how much is the $5 bill worth? $5. If I do this, how much is the $5 bill worth? $5. If the bill falls on the ground to get stepped on, how much is the bill worth? $5. Because the position of the bill doesn't dictate its value. Its value is given to it by something outside of itself. Our country defines the value of this $5 bill. And the reason I do this is because we're kind of like this $5 bill. Now, don't look at me. Some of you are like, I am worth more than $5. Gotcha. But some of us feel like we've been handed from hand to hand, put, trampled on, crumpled up, and we feel like maybe we've lost some of our value and some of our worth. But God is seeking you out. You in this room, he's seeking you out to restore your value. Every single seat that's empty in here, he's seeking those people out. People that need to fill this space. He's seeking them out to remind them and to restore their worth. Just because they're lost doesn't mean they don't have value. Just because people are lost doesn't mean they've lost their value. God wants you to understand that you have infinite value, not because of where you are or if you're lost, but because you're created in his image. No matter what the world has told you, the world does not get to dictate your value. God's word is what should dictate your value. So the woman searches for the missing coin. And then Jesus concludes this story with what will become, and it's becoming a familiar chorus. I found it. Party time. Let's read it. Luke 15, 9 and 10. When she finally found it, she gathered all her friends and neighbors for a celebration. I mean, this celebration, I wonder if it cost more than the coin she lost. She didn't care. She said, come on and celebrate with me. I had lost my precious silver coin, but now I found it. That's the way God responds. Every time one lost sinner repents and turns to him, he says to all his angels, let's have a joyous celebration for the one who was lost, I have found. Again, lost things matter. God wants you to know that you may have lost your way, but you've never lost your value. You may have lost your way, but you've never lost your value. Why is Relevant Church always going to be obsessed with reaching the lost? Because lost things have value. And lost things matter dearly to God. Then comes the final story. And it begins like this. There once was a father with two sons. Think of this as the crescendo, the best part of your favorite song. It's three minutes in and Journey finally says, don't stop believing. Okay? Here it comes, and it all begins. There once was a father with two sons. Jesus is going to speak directly to his audience of law keepers and lawbreakers. And most of you are familiar with this story. The younger of the two sons approaches the father, and he asks for his inheritance. He asks for his, his share of the estate, which is basically the same as saying, Dad, you're better dead to me than alive. I'd rather have my inheritance now than have to outweigh you. 
What a horrible thing to say to a father. Impatient, dishonorable. But this father, being loving, gracious, generous, gives his younger son his portion of the estate. So the younger son takes his newfound wealth, he gathers all that he has, and he leaves, abandoning his older son, the older brother, and his father. And he sets out on a journey, as we read, if you read in scripture, it says it's filled with wild living and excess, and he spends all that he's been given. Everything he'd been blessed with, wasted, gone, a famine hits the land, and he's left hungry, hopeless, and desperate. He's starving and he's willing to do anything to survive, so he turns to feeding pigs. And he even desires to quench his appetite by eating their leftovers. Now hearing this, the listening audience would have been repulsed and shocked by the actions of this younger son. He disrespected his family, and now he's willing to dine with swine? A Jewish man shouldn't even be associating himself with unclean animals like pigs, let alone wanting to just eat their leftovers and their slop. But in this moment, when everything seems lost, clarity starts to ring true. The Bible says the son came to his senses. There are people that are in their deepest, most despair. And sometimes in those deep moments of despair is when grace rings true the loudest. He's in this deep moment and clarity sets in. The son says, I don't have to live like this. I have a father who never moved. And I can go back. I'm starving to death. But my father has what I'm hungry for. That could be a whole nother sermon. Some of us need to stop filling up on what will never satisfy and return to the Father because your Father has what you're actually hungry for. There are people here in this church, in your neighborhoods, in your community that are coming to their senses, coming to the realization that what they've been feasting on, addictions, the desire for approval and relationships, the hunt for, for more stuff and more money, that those things will always leave them feeling lost and hungry and they're becoming aware of their senses that there must be something more. That there is a father who has what they're hungry for and they're being called home. So the son begins to come to his senses and then he comes up with this pig pen speech. He comes with this three-point pig pen sermon. That's what it is. And he's going to go home and give his dad this three-point pig pen sermon. And it says, I have sinned. I'm not worthy. Let me at least be your servant. Three points. And here's what he's doing. He's still connecting his belonging to his behavior. And it's something we'll see that the father doesn't do and God never does. Through Jesus, God doesn't connect your belonging to your behavior. God connects your belonging to the behavior of Jesus. He connects your belonging to his family to the behavior of Jesus Christ. So the son, ready with his three-point pig pen sermon, gets up. He's, I'm sure, covered in muck and still smelling like the pigs he's been dining with, and he decides, I'm going to go back home. And he starts walking home, and as he approaches, while still far off in the distance, the father sees someone coming up over the hill. I can just imagine this boy coming. He's dirty, probably ashamed. Maybe got a little limp to him, and he's just walking towards the house. And the father, it says, is moved with compassion. My son has come home and the father starts sprinting 
towards his son. Undignified, unheard of of a man of this kind of stature. He begins to sprint towards his son. And I think it's, it's an amazing way for us to remember that sometimes we come to God with a limp and he meets us with a sprint. The father immediately wraps his son, starts to hug him and kiss him. And immediately the son goes into the, his three-point babbling like sermon that he wrote in the pig pen. I've sinned. I'm not worthy. And the father isn't even hearing all of it. He doesn't even get to his third point, And the father turns towards his servant and he says to his servant, bring the best. Bring the best. Bring the best robe. Bring a ring. Bring the best shoes. The fatted calf. We're going to have the best celebration. God is a loving father. And he has sent me to tell you he's a God who brings the best. He has the best for you. You need to be reminded that you are loved as his own. He doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter. And you need to be reminded that you have a God who gives the best. He gives the best, not leftovers, not mediocre, not here you kind of go. He gives the best. And you know how I know that? He gave us Jesus, the best. He gave us the best because he gave us Jesus. And then the chorus plays again. Luke 15, 23 and 24. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. For my beloved son was once dead, but now he's alive. Once he was lost, but now he's found and everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. Now it seemed to be a good ending to these stories, but there's still another son. A son that we began our message with and a son that never left the father. A son that was even at that moment faithfully taking care of his father's property. And now this older son hears that there's a party taking place. And it says in a lot of translations, it says he heard, it says he heard the dancing. I'm like, what kind of dancing were they doing? Like they were getting down, stomp the yard, let's go. But he discovers that a party is being thrown for his younger brother and he starts to get upset. He starts to get angry and he refuses to go in. He starts complaining while standing out in the front yard. And he's throwing a fit in the front yard, and guess what the father does? It's a subtle thing that a lot of times we glance over. But if you look in verse 28, it says, The father came out. The father came out and pleaded. So here's what I want us to, to realize the father moves towards both sons. In both instances, with both sons, the father moved towards them. He moves towards the older brother and the younger. God is always positioned and looking to move towards us. God is moving towards us whether we're in the front yard or far off. Whether we're sitting here in this auditorium in the sanctuary or whether we're sleeping off last night's bad decisions, God is always moving towards us. And honestly, I've been doing ministry for almost 20 years and I know that many times in church we become much more like this older son. We judge the preacher and the worship. We begin to define ourselves as servants standing in the front yard instead of sons partaking in the party. And I'm just as guilty of this as the next because we start finding our worth and our actions and our behaviors and we become more focused on what we can do instead of what we belong to. We start being more focused on being servants than being sons. And before long, we don't even care that a brother of ours went missing because we're busy serving the Father. 
And while serving God is super important and, and it's something we should all be doing faithfully, being a part of the body, it's futile if, we lo- if we've lost the Father's heart. If we're serving and we've lost the Father's heart, what we're doing is futile. The heart of the Father is always on the lookout for what's missing. When we lose the heart of the Father, we no longer see the missing as our brothers. We see them as someone else's problem. The reason I know, if you read this, this brother has a speech too. And when he's given his speech, he doesn't refer to him as his brother. He says, this son of yours. And we start doing sometimes the same thing. We divide ourselves from people who are actually our brothers and we start giving them different labels and titles to separate ourselves from them. These people. Instead of knowing that those people, even though they may not be in here, those are your brothers and your sisters that are just waiting to come home. So this father, again, Remember, he moves towards both sons and he goes outside and the son has a speech and he tries to remind, first off, this dad how great of a son he is. Then he starts accusing his younger brother of stuff that we don't see exactly happening, but he starts accusing him of those things. Then he complains that the father never does anything for him. He says, you never throw me, you don't even give me a goat. One of the best giveaways that you've lost the heart of the father is when you start comparing and complaining. Let me say it again. One of the best giveaways that you've lost the heart of God is if you're living in comparison and complaining. The father listens. And his reply is one final time you hear the familiar chorus. Luke 15, 31 and 32, it says, the father said, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. It's only right to rejoice and celebrate like this because your brother was once dead, but now he's alive and back with us. He was lost, but he was now found. Lost things matter. I found it. Let's party. The older brother missed the whole thing because he wasn't positioned to party. He didn't see himself as worthy. He saw himself as still having to earn his worth. The party is always about finding the lost things. It's about the son. And I feel like the father would have looked at him and said, you want to go? Go get one. You're my son. You always belong to me. And some of us need to be reminded of that. You are already a part of God's family. And sometimes we complain and compare and God's like, you want to ask for it, please. You want to go? Go get one. So you don't need to see yourself as a servant or a slave once again. You're my son. You're my daughter. So in closing, I got a couple questions. The first one is this. It's a simple one. How do you see yourself? God sees you as his son. God sees you as his daughter. Some of us, we beat ourselves up and we're like the son at the beginning and all we see ourselves is not good enough in us, and we're sinners and we're ready to give this three-point sermon. I'm not good enough. I'm sorry. And there's times for us to be repentant and that, that is true, but we have to be reminded that you are, are an heir to the kingdom. You are the righteousness of Christ. He sees you through the lens of Jesus. Others of us, we define ourselves by the things that we do. Man, I'm so good. I'm so great. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. And we start defining ourselves as being a servant. And again, 
God says, I don't, I don't want you to be reminded that you're a slave, that you're a servant, that you're a sinner. You are a son. You are a daughter. Don't forever forget what you really are. The second question is this. And this is more for us as a church, you personally as well, but are you positioned to party? Over and over again, lost things matter. I found the lost thing, and then what does he do? Party time. As a church, are you positioned to party? And here's what I mean by this. I'm going to jump off this stage. I'm going to freak out the camera, guys, because so online people, just bear with us. Too bad. You should be here in the room. <laughs> a lot of times we come into church and we face this way the whole entire time. We come in those doors, come in this place, we sit in this seat, we open our Bibles this way, we raise our hands this way, we pray this way, and the only other time we go this way is when we're leaving. We're always facing inward. We're facing forward. We're facing forward. We're facing forward. And I don't think that's a problem because we all need a space in a time where corporately we're facing forward in worship, in prayer, in devotion. But that isn't the position of party. Position to party means I'm always looking for what's out there. And so some of us need to turn from here to being a church that is positioned to party. And here's what that looks like. Welcome to Relevant Church. We're so glad you're here. Hey, can I get some more coffee for you? It was your birthday. You're four years old. Awesome. Come on in. We're going to have a great time today. Being positioned to party means that I'm not, when I come to church, I'm going to partake in facing forward, but I'm also going to partake in facing outward because I'm looking for the lost. I'm looking for the missing. One of my favorite things about last week, we talked about moving the dirt and I went into the next steps class and there were some people sitting there. They said, this is, this is it today. I've been here for a while and it's time to take my next step. Facing outward also means when Pastor Jace comes out here, it's, it's deciding, hey, all right, I'm gonna look down, I'm gonna trust you, God, with my tithe, with my generosity, because I'm focused on the missing, and I'm gonna trust that this church is gonna do their best to help with finding the missing. I'm not just facing forward, I'm facing outward. Last night, you guys had an event, and it shows that there is a desire in this community for something with families. They said there's over 1,000 people that were here, and those of you that were a part of this, thank you so much because you were helping us be an outward-focused church. And you're like, we just handed out candy. You know what we also did? We showed people the generosity of God. Facing outward. Sometimes facing outward seems so simple. But I want to encourage you to be a church that faces outward, that serves faithfully, that gives generously. It frustrates me that he has to keep coming up here and asking about helping send those boxes across the world. That need should be met. We need to be an outward-focused church. That's the heart of the Father. Again, I'm not, I'm not here to, to beat you up. You guys are a great church. I see you serving well, but man, we can always have more of the Father's heart. So are we positioned to party? Because when lost people come, there is nothing, nothing 
better than when you get to baptize someone and you see their face of excitement and they're just, they're gleaming with joy because lost things matter and we celebrate. So let's be a church where when we go out into the parking lot, that we got a parking lot that's scattered with cigarette butts and swear words. And you know why? Because that means lost people are coming home. So those two questions, how do you see yourself? Remind yourself, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the king. And then personally, and as a church, my position to party, because it doesn't just end here at the church. We do the same thing at home. We always focus inward. We come, get out of the car. A lot of us drive into our garages. We've got a whole neighborhood. Man, we just, we can at least smile and wave. Position yourself to party. Let's be determined to be a place where the Father's heart is on full display. Never forget this, because he moves towards you. The Father moved towards both sons. You are his child, and he's a God that has the best, including forgiveness, freedom, and hope. Remember, these stories aren't about us. They're always about Jesus and drawing us closer to him. He wants us to understand that I'm always coming towards you, and I'm here to welcome you no matter where you are. Lost things matter, and we're going to be a place where parties are consistently being thrown.